Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and hope you're enjoying the 2020 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Maggie Riddle. I'm a first year MBA student here at Sloan and it is my pleasure to introduce the panel and simul uh, the dark arts, what the sports world can learn from chess. We're going to start with a 30 minute simul uh, where four challengers will be challenging Robert Grandmaster, chess Grandmaster Robert Hess. Um, but before I hand it over to Danny, who will be commentating. He's also doing it blindfolded. Yes, <laughs> we will get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> but before I hand it over to Danny, just wanted to give the challengers an opportunity to introduce themselves. Hey, I'm Peter Keating. I'm a senior writer for analytics at ESPN. I'm old enough to remember the Fisher-Spassky match, the first one. <laughs> what, you like watched it? My dad taught me how to play when that was on TV. Nice, so oh, here you hold it. Um, Daryl Morey, Houston Rockets GM. Very intimidated right now with this blindfold thing. You're the only other GM here. You're good. Uh, I'm Jake Lorem. I write about sports at 538. Okay, and um, my name's Danny Wrench, and I'm a, I'm a chess commentator for a living. That is a thing. Um, and Chief Chess Officer, the most made-up title on the planet. Um, but Chief Basketball Operation, never mind, okay. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to be providing some commentary while Robert Hess, who is a grandmaster, this, that is the highest title one can achieve in the chess world, the highest form of acknowledgement. But one of our participants in this four-board simul did not show up, so I'm going to ask a member from the audience a trivia question. Whoever can answer the trivia question gets the fourth board. Where did Grandmaster Robert Hess attend a university? Where did he go to college? And graduate? Hands up. Hands up. Okay, John, you don't count. Yeah. Wow. Not Brown, but very close. Close. Isn't Brown close? Well, it's kind of close. No, okay. Yeah, it is. Just let him go. Yale, that's right. Come on up. Yeah, you get to play the fourth board simul. We'll get your name here in a second. What? Do you want to play? Okay, if you didn't, I was going to let you choose someone, but all right, what's your name? Thank you, sir. Bill. We've got Bill here who is a student at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech. All right, Bill, go ahead. Take the fourth seat over there. We've got a tie from the audience? Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Are you, is there any video of the board? Yeah. Um, yeah, I will. So, here's how this is going to work for everybody watching. Last year, if you happen to have attended our uh, chess and artificial intelligence, machine learning, we did a more traditional simul, which is where Robert himself would walk by every board and make a move when it was his turn. I was trying to be gentle to you, you know? Today, in order to take it to the next level this year, we decided to, to make it a little bit harder for our grandmaster by blindfolding him and asking him to to play the same amount of chess games. Here we have four chess games, uh, but he's not going to be able to see the board. Here's how the mechanics of this work. Robert has been playing chess his entire life, and the game is one of, of pattern recognition where he knows almost always what the right move is, whether the game is physically in front of his eyes or not. So on every board, we're going to have board one be Bill, board two be Jake, 
Board three is Daryl. Robert, you're listening. Board no, four is Peter. I don't listen to you. Okay. Board one is Bill. Board two, Jake. Board three, Daryl. Board four, Peter. On board one, John Urschel, this is his job now is to just make chess moves for other people. Oh, I do. John, John Urschel is going to make the move for Robert as Robert announces it. The other player will make their move. Uh, and when they do, Ro John will announce board three plays, board four plays, board two plays. Very important that John announces it clearly for Robert to hear it. Go do a quick test that Robert can hear you. Uh, board one plays. I can hear you. Okay, good. So the games are also timed. What Robert is about to do here is actually exceptionally difficult, even for chess professionals, given that this is a rapid time control. Uh, the players will be under 10 minutes right to start, so they have 10 minutes total to play the entire game with five seconds added per move. So Robert will have to play all four of these guys with time running and with John announcing, Robert will play the games in his head. And without any further ado, any other questions? All, all you guys have to do is just make your chess moves normally. You don't have to do anything differently. John will communicate to Robert. Okay. Yeah, I will do my best. So here we go. Pawn e4. Board two. Uh, pawn b3. Board three. Pawn d4. Board four. Pawn c4. Board one e5. Knight f3. Board two e5. Bishop b2. Board three d5. Sorry, what was that? D5. Uh, thank you. Enunciate. Appreciate it. Um, pawn G3. Board 4, Knight F6. Knight C3. Board 1, Knight F6. Um, knight takes E5. Board 2, Pawn D6. Pawn to E3. Pawn to E3. Board three, knight f6. Bishop g2. Board four, pawn g6. Pawn d4. The opening stage is the fastest, so I'm being quiet right now to let Board the game develop. Board one, knight takes Not e4. interrupt their, their communication, Queen that's e2. all. That one's going to be. Board two, knight f6. Pawn c4. Board three, g6. Bishop g2. Pass. What? You've already played bishop g2. Oh, sorry. I'm losing track of where I am in these games. My bad. Uh, you said pawn g6? Yeah. Pawn c4. I was just so focused on that move. Okay. Uh, board four, pawn c5. Okay. Um, knight to f3. Board one, bishop d6. Queen takes e4. Good. Okay. Board two, bishop e7. Pawn to d4. Okay. Board three, pawn e6. Pawn takes d5. Okay. And board four, Bishop G7. Um, pawn to A3. 
All right, board one, uh, castles short, obviously. Yep, uh, pawn to d4. Board three, board two, knight c6. Knight to f3. Okay. Board four, board three, apologies, e takes d5. Okay, knight c3. Knight c3. And board four, castles short. Okay. Um. I honestly, this is the one I'm forgetting right now. So, okay. struggling with my pieces. Pawn to e3. Okay. Looks like a good move to me. Thanks. Appreciate the support, buddy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> board one, knight c6. Okay. Uh, bishop d3. Okay. Board two, bishop g4. Okay. Pawn takes e5. Board three, c6. Knight f3. Board four, queen a5. Okay. Um. Hmm. No, I'll tell you when things are checked. Yeah, rook b1. Board one, f6. Queen takes h7, checkmate. So, <laughs> on this board, and I, I apologize for making you nervous by bringing over our guy board here. Board two, we have, what'd you play? So we can ah. see this for later. D okay, so we have, we have checkmate with our student board here who joined the battle because the king is trapped and Queen cannot go to the square because the knight takes away this escape square. So, yeah. I'm helping the others, but that was a good game. Board three. Biggest mistake was taking that pawn on e4. Bishop tonight, g7. Good job. All right. Uh, castle kingside. Hey, Daryl, you're playing well. Uh, thanks, Robert. Right. <laughs> Board four. Pawn d6. Okay. Uh, pawn b4. Did you say pawn b4? Yeah, I did. Okay. Thank you. Board two. Rook d8. Um, Rook takes. D8. Yep, I know. Excuse me. I appreciate it, though. No, that's that's my fault. You're a good friend. Uh, Bishop e2. Okay. Board three, castles short. Okay. Oh, Daryl, Daryl, Daryl. <laughs> Rook to b1. Rook to b1. You said. Daryl, Daryl is playing well. You said, I said B1. Rook to B1. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, board four. Pawn takes B4. Pawn takes B4. Okay, perfect. Uh, no, you take your time. Okay. Board three. We're out of order now. Yep. Bishop G4. Okay. Pawn to H3. Okay. Board four, we have queen c7. Okay. Um, bishop e2. Okay. 
Well, that's good, because now I didn't remember where that piece was, so now I do. Okay. <laughs> All right. Board three, bishop, c8. Okay. Um, pawn to b4. Okay. Board two, pawn e4. Um, knight to d4. Board four, thank you, bishop e6. Okay. Um, pawn to d3. Uh, that is not a legal move. Ah, because my pawn's on d4. That's right. Wow, you're so informative. Um, that's good to know. Queen to b3. Uh, just to clarify, you said b3? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, board two, bishop takes e2. Okay. Um, king takes e2. Okay. Six minutes on board two, seven and a half on board three, board five three, and a half on board four. Board three, rookie eight. Okay. Um, pawn to a4. Daryl, I like your strategy of playing quick, good moves. Board four, knight g4. Um, okay. Pawn to h3. Okay. Uh, board two, knight b4. Mm -hmm. That's a good move. And I'm going to go knight to f5. Board four, knight h6. Okay. Um, Daryl is still thinking, now under six minutes. Pawn to e4 on board four. Yeah. Yep. Uh, everyone is currently thinking. Uh, Daryl just played a5. Okay. I will go. B5. B5. You said B5? B, 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 B. Okay, good. Sorry, I should take my own advice. Right. And uh, board two, knight C2. Okay. Yeah. So if he has castled, this will be a very bad move. But if he hasn't, knight takes G7 check. Okay. Good move, Robert. Board four... Thank you, Danny. F5. Sorry, which board? Board four, okay. F5. Um, yeah. E5 on board four. The moment I talk. Okay, uh, board three, rook E7. What did you say? Rook E7. Okay. Um, pawn takes c6. Okay. Uh, board four, pawn takes e5. Pawn takes e5. Okay. Board two, king f8. Okay. Knight 
back to F5. Board four, bishop, does it takes e5? Yes, bishop takes e5. Um, bishop takes h6. Every board has reached critical board moments three, here. It takes? Knight takes c6. Robert has four and a half minutes on board two. Four minutes on board four versus Peter, and six minutes versus Daryl. Knight to b5 against Daryl. Yes. Okay. Yep. Board two, knight takes a1. Bishop takes a1. Uh, board four, rook d8. Okay. Hmm. Knight to d5. Uh, here, let me go here. Uh, board two, rook g8. Okay. Um, Pawn to g3. Okay. Every, oh. uh, board three, knight e4. Mm -hmm. uh, bishop a3. Okay. Uh, board four, bishop takes d5. Pawn takes d5. Three and a half minutes on board four. Board two, yeah, uh, rook g6. Okay, um, knight to d2. Everyone is currently thinking. I love a good break. The games will be reaching time scrambles soon to emphasize the difficulty. Board three, rook doing. e6. Rook where, sorry? e6. Okay. Robert, clearly no longer able to play any of the games from memory or previous experience. Every position is completely original, something he would never have really played before. Very difficult to solve with few, few seconds on the queen clock. Queen d3. Queen d3. Okay, board four, queen d6. Okay. And you have three minutes. Just three. All right. Um, bishop back to e3. Okay. Uh, board two, rook g5. You have three and a half minutes here. Okay. Um, knight takes e7. Everyone is thinking. Uh, Daryl played queen, sorry, board three. Yep. Played queen e8. Okay. Pawn 
E3. Okay. And board four played queen D5. Queen takes queen D5. Queen takes D5. Okay. Um, so I am going to take the queen. Okay. Uh, board four played rook takes. Knight takes E5. Say that again. Knight takes bishop on E5. Board four played rook takes e5. Bishop d4. Okay. Board two played rook d2 check. So took my knight. Yes. Rook takes d2. Yeah. So king takes rook. Okay. Board two plays king takes e7. Mm-hmm. Um, Rook to D1. Okay. Help me. Was it takes? No, okay. Board four played rook takes. Sorry, board four played rook E4. Mm-hmm. So bishop takes rook. Your bishop's on E2. By the bishop on... Oh, wait. Yeah. Oh. See, now I made a mistake. Uh, sorry. Bishop back to e3. Okay. Good. On board two. What did you just do? Knight to g4. Knight to g4. Okay. Um, king e2. Okay. Everyone is thinking. Board three, queen d7. Mm-hmm. Um, rook B1 to C1. Rook B1 to C1? Yep. Said? Yep. Good. Uh, board four, knight C6. Bishop to F3. Okay. Yeah, I want to go here yep. first. Uh, board two, it was takes, correct? Mm -hmm. Knight takes H2. One minute and 50 seconds on board two. The knight takes h2. Um, rook h1. Okay. Uh, on board three, bishop f8. Bishop takes bishop. Uh, on board three, king takes f8. Mm -hmm. um, rook to c2. Okay. On board two, knight... F3. Rook takes H7. Okay. With good positions on every board, yes. it's possible I haven't on given Robert board time one. to complete this task. Just Sorry, board four? Yep. Excuse me. Rook takes B4. Okay. Um, castles kingside. Okay. On board three, knight B4. Uh-oh. Yep, yep. Wait, that's not good. Uh, queen, oh, can't move there. Um, Daryl, you're getting better. Who's your coach? <laughs> uh, queen b3. Queen b3. On board four, rook takes b1. Uh, rook takes rook. Daryl has been taking private chess lessons uh, from Robert Hess. F5. On board four, rook c8. You said rook c8? Yes. 
You didn't take my rook? No, yeah. no that was the Oh, sorry, board four, yeah. you said. Board four. Rook takes c8. I, I was thinking of Daryl. Sorry, rook c8, not rook. Yeah, I got you. Um, rook takes b7? Yeah. One minute on board four. Yep. And on board two, what did you play? 50 seconds. Rook a5. Rook a5 on Pawn board a4. two. Pawn a4. Pawn b4? A4. A4. Thank you. I can blunder for myself. I don't need yeah, you to do it for that's me. That's fair. Uh, board three, knight takes c2. That's what I was expecting. Okay, queen, queen takes, takes knight. Okay. Daryl, I thought you gave me you know, a break. Board four, <laughs> pawn e5. Okay. Um, you have one minute. Bishop d5. Check. Yes. Yep. Uh, board three, king... G8. Um, rook to C1. Everyone is thinking. Uh, board four, king F8. Ooh. Bishop H6, check. Board three, rook C6. Uh, queen b1. Board 4, king e8. Bishop f7, check. Board 2, help me out here. Rook a6. Okay. Um, bishop to c3. Okay. On board 4, King d8. Bishop g5 check. And bishop takes knight mate, right? Good. Okay. Good. Great game here by Peter. It was Board very close. Board three, queen e7. Checkmate in the final position. We'll explain it in a second. But and uh, that was actually, a let game. me stop great you. Game. Let's go to board two. Okay. Uh, rook d6. You have 25 seconds. Rook d6, you said? Yes. Bishop b4. Okay. Good. Uh... Board three, queen e7. Um, yeah, I don't like my position. Daryl, you're, you're a mean guy. Yeah, we should go back to board uh, two. Oh, knight e5 against Daryl. Knight where? e5. Knight? e5. e5, okay, perfect. Board two, king e6. Bishop takes rook. Yeah. Bishop takes rook. Bishop takes rook. Pawn takes? Rook h8. Sorry, king takes. Oh, uh, rook takes f7. Rook takes f7. You have 16 seconds. And Daryl's thinking? You have one minute and 30 seconds against Daryl versus a minute 22 for Daryl. Rook takes C1. Queen takes C1. Wait, how much time do I have against Daryl? Uh, you have a minute and 38. Would you move? Too much time to suck. Uh, board two, pawn B6. 10 seconds. Um, rook takes A7. Oh, sorry, there's no. pawn C7. Rook F8. Rook F8. Perfect. I'm going to stick on board two for a second. King C6. Okay, rook A8. King b7. Rook e8. Yeah. Robert has 11 seconds. Uh, Daryl, what did you play? Uh, still board two, knight g5. Okay, rook e5. 10 seconds. He's trying to beat me on time. Yep. Can't even uh, see. Knight f3. Uh, rook takes e4. Knight g1, check. 
King F1. Knight H3. Rook E5. Can you wait for one second? Just, <laughs> you have three minutes. Just pause for a second. Daryl, what did you play? Where? Bishop E6. Okay. Um, did you already take me on C1, Daryl? Did you take my rook on C1 before? He, he, he did. Okay, good. I was about to... The, say your queen's on C1. Well, I would have been disappointed if he made a mistake because I'm rooting for... You can him. argue you with me. You have 25 seconds. Oh, uh, queen to C7. Okay. Queen. I'm supporting you, Daryl. Seven. Robert's opponent on board two has two minutes and 25 seconds. Robert has 10 seconds. Yeah. Daryl has a minute and seven seconds. Robert has 28 seconds. We're playing touch rule, just so you know. So you better, <laughs> We're not playing touch move. <laughs> Daryl, don't let him intimidate you. You better move it somewhere. I, even see it. I saw it. <laughs> but we can see it. You better move it somewhere. In official tournament chess, if you touch a piece, you have to move it. There is no... Daryl played rook c8. Okay, so queen takes queen. Yep, good. Oh, Daryl, you came so far. Touch move. You came so far. You. All right, we're going back to... Yep. Is Daryl, are you going to... No, Daryl's still playing. Just hold Ready. for a second. Go ahead, Jake. Sure. Yep. Okay, board two is yep. back in action. Yep. King C6. Rook H5. Good. Uh, Daryl played Rook... C1. Hold on, hold on, over here. Uh, knight takes king, F2. King H2. Uh, knight takes F2, king takes F2. Okay, knight takes, yep. king takes. Yeah, hit the clock again. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, on Daryl's board. On Daryl's board, he played rook C1. Uh, Check. Uh, didn't I move my king already to H2? Now you have. You, yeah, now you have. Uh, I said it. You have 12 seconds it. versus Daryl. Daryl has 30 yeah. seconds. Story of our friendship. Yeah, I do um, want you to wait. A5 played on uh, board two. Okay. Yeah, A5 played on board G4. two. G4. G4. 10 seconds again. King d6, board two. G5. G5. Knight takes up two by Daryl. Uh, um, What'd you play? Bishop on e6. Um, King c5 seconds. on board two. seconds. Okay, Bishop We've run out of time against Daryl Morey. Yeah, okay. Daryl was winning. So what is Darryl the move? One. Okay. G6. Daryl Morey has one on time. And this one one on time as well. Oh, and this one also one on time. No, but, but uh, we can. That, moments away. Yeah. That, okay, Robert, you can un untake off your blindfold. Let's give and, him a huge uh, hand, everybody. That was. So, you lost on time and completely, it looks like completely winning position. Hey, John, you're just a little tight. Can you undo this for me? Yeah, I got you. So, Sorry, apologies little, for uh, lack of description the during the game, it's obviously, okay. in this you're setting. You're um, It's difficult to add any sort of descriptions or educational breakdowns of what's happening because I don't want to interrupt their, their process of communication. But I'm going to ask Robert to join me. We're just going to go quickly through the boards. Yeah, yeah. Can you see, buddy? It's yeah, but it's okay. like yeah, yeah, he's uh, people here. Really Without really diving too much into the X's and O's because I know, I know everyone can't see it so clearly here. This was a good example of a grandmaster winning a game on previous experience. He won in checkmate, won by checkmate before move 10. Uh, the pattern that was used, Robert, queen and bishop battery. How many times have you done that checkmate in your life? A few. A few. A few times. You've been the victim of a, a few. A few. Uh, over here against Jake. Jake had a great game. Um, the final position is one where White is moments away from winning. But again, the uh, difficult task we faced Robert with on, on the clock. Ultimately, Jake did what he had to do. Eventually won on time. But the position here was, uh, that was a complicated one. Yeah. That was tough for a while. He played extremely well. Extremely well. well. Yeah. Um, Daryl maybe played the best game of all. Best yeah. game of his life. 
Daryl, as Robert actually is Daryl's private chess coach. That wasn't just a joke. Um, they do do chess, and Daryl played maybe one of the best chess games I, I've ever seen you play until until the queen was lost there. Until you he, missed the queen. He didn't want his biggest piece, so he went small ball and gave yeah, up. Yeah, he went small ball, exactly. He gave up, he gave up his... Uh... <laughs> Not in that position. He tra traded his center away for, uh, for a little guy, but ultimately Robert was also winning in this final position. And, um, but that was, that was a great game. That was a great game. Uh, Peter, Peter was also doing great for a long time, ultimately fell victim to a two-bishop pattern, again, something Robert's done a few times in his life. What was the critical moment for you in this game? Sometimes you get so focused on what you want to happen that you just miss a piece. I just forgot there was a dark-squared bishop, yep. and then it came down and said, right. check. And but do you remember when I said bishop takes rook? I thought my bishop was on the other diagonal, right. and I was like, oh, okay. can't do that, because I was mixing up boards. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how chess grandmasters think and, and this... The skills that they developed in terms of pattern recognition, speaking the language of chess as we dive into the panel right here. So give us a few minutes, if you would. We're going to jump into discussing things that the sports world might be able to learn from chess, things that the chess world does that maybe, maybe they could do differently and better than the sports world. And uh, if you just give us a couple minutes, the panel's going to start. So please don't go anywhere. I didn't notice that you missed one. I only got the four. Yeah, but I have to say, like, okay, early on I could remember, like, yeah. I could see the board and I could see where they moved, but after, like, moved, like, 15 or 20, I needed, like, tell me where you moved. Because I need a nap. I couldn't remember. Oh, we're still... Next time. Yeah. Hey, I'm live. It is my pleasure to introduce the panel aspect I'm of the dark arts, what the sports world can learn from chess. Our panelists are Neil Payne, senior sports writer at 538. You already know Robert, <laughs> grand, uh, chess grandmaster. John Urschel, mathematician and former NFL player. Daryl Morey, general manage, manager of the Rockets. And Danny Wrench, chief chess officer of chess.com. The panel will be 45 minutes with 10 minutes at the end for questions. If you have any questions, please uh, tweet them and use the hashtag checkmate. And with that, I'll pass it off to Danny. It's a good hashtag. Thank you, Maggie. Good hashtag. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, everybody. Uh, for those of you that have been around since the, the chess simul that we just did, that truly is a very, very difficult task, and I think one that shows uh, and helps preface some of the things we're going to dive into right away about the abstract notion of this panel, which is, is the question or the theory, really, Daryl came up with it, as to, to the question, will what happens in chess eventually happen in all sports? And there's, there's a precedent for that. There's history to that. Chess was actually not just the oldest game in the world, but actually the first game that really started keeping score. And what I mean by that, other games kept score in terms of win and losses, right? I mean, they've been playing soccer since the Mayan days and all this stuff. But, but keeping score in a way that one of our players, Peter Keating, just did. This is called keeping notation of a chess game. And this is actually a record of not just the result, but every single thing that happened. Every move is sort of an address. It's a notation. These days, we, we, we call this online, we call this PGN, which is a portable game notation. And the reason that's important is we're at a, an analytics conference here, and we talk about the details, right? We talk about the, the game within the game often in just about every panel you visit here, right? Chess was one of the first games that started doing that. Chess was also the first game to start applying uh, an applicable rating system that goes beyond just one matchup, a rating system that defines the strength of a player. We call that the, the ELO system that was started and is used 
now is used in modern chess and is, and is being applied currently in other sports as well, is a way to define not just the, the previous performances of, of an athlete or a team, but also perhaps be a little bit more predictive of what's about to happen when two teams or two players face off. And I think that in a world like this, that's kind of what everyone's looking for is the edge in terms of uh, how to predict more properly what's going to happen. So I've kind of set up a little bit of what Chess has done. Um, last year we had a panel where Chess was one of the first things to really start diving into machine learning and artificial intelligence. People remember man versus machine, chess battles. and. So there's a lot of things that chess is doing, and right now with ELO making its way into the chess world in many ways, into the sports world, we're going to get to Neil in a second. First thing I want to do is hand off to John and let him describe as our resident mathematician in this panel, what exactly is ELO for everyone? If you could give us a basic kind of description of what, what the rating system ELO does differently than other types of ranking systems. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a fairly straightforward rate rating system. The idea is players are scored on a scale, Every player has a number associated with them. When two players play each other, the amount that one player gains or loses based off the results of the game is dependent on the difference between their two ratings. And so, like, the basic ELO rating system is scale invariant in some sense. Okay. Yeah. And, and so the, the ELO rating system, as it's been used in chess, describes and gives them kind of a label, right? You're label, we're labeling yes. people. This is how good this guy is, how good they are, right? But in the sports world, in theory, every team starts out with a fresh label. We like to think in spring that some of our teams can still win a World Series. We know that we'll have that bubble pop very soon. Every team is zero and zero right now. Right. <laughs> and, but, but Neil, in 2015, you were one of the first ones, writers for 538, to describe and break down the MLB with an ELO system. And then recently, in November 2018, you sort of gave the on-paper World Series to the Astros <laughs> with an article, November 8, 20, 2019. We won't get into anything else about sure. that yet. Yeah. <laughs> but describe for us kind of what you did there and how you've been applying ELO into ranking Major League Baseball teams and some of the stuff that Nate has been doing to rank NFL and NBA teams as well. Sure. So it's like John said, uh, ELO is a very elegant system that at its core just looks at two competitors. Each one carries a rating. And out of those ratings, because of the elegance of the system, it implies a win probability for each competitor in a matchup. It could be two chess players. It could be two teams teams. Uh, and so the, the way that the points are allocated after the game is in proportion to the, the improbability of the result. Big upsets, you, uh, the, the system is self-correcting. So it would say, well, our ratings going into the game were clearly off because of this upset. So we allocate more of the points from the team that lost to the team that won. Whereas if it's a, a team that has a 99% chance of winning uh, and they do win, it really barely changes the ratings at all because it was basically confirmation that the pregame ratings were essentially correct. So that's the elegance of the system. It's a totally closed system in which points that one team gets are always points that the other team loses. And you can add wrinkles onto it, and this is what we've done in sports, where you can account for margin of victory. When Arpad Elo, uh, the Hungarian chess master who sort of came up with uh, the Elo system, when he first devised it, it was just about pure wins and losses. Uh, and there was no mechanism. It would be so somewhat difficult. You could speak to this probably better than me in chess of figuring out, you know, should you take into account the amount of time left uh, on the clock, uh, you know, how quickly you were able to kind of checkmate someone. Uh, it, it doesn't lend itself as easily to margin of victory as something like football does. Uh, 
and so we baked in a way of sort of changing the way that you allocate the points after a game to give more points to teams that blew out other teams. But you don't want to give too much. There's a limiting factor so that teams that run up the score don't get, you know, wildly inflated ratings. So those are some of the factors that you have to do when you port over ELO to uh, sports uh, that perhaps, you know, Arpad Elo never had in mind when he was coming up with his chess rating system. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. I'm yeah. curious because I know about your, you know, your football Elo rating system that you used to do. When you have so few games, you can't start everyone at a fixed rate, right. rating and expect them to sort of move towards their true rating after 16 games. How did you pick their ELO ratings for the start of the game? Yeah, and so those season. right. So those originally were based on, and this actually you can do and get a, a high level of accuracy if you just do this simple thing of take last year's final rating, yeah. regress it to the mean by a certain amount, and then those are the preseason ratings for the following season, and then you sort of let people you know kind of play their games mm -hmm. from there. Okay. Now what we do is we actually take into account uh, some of the computer projection systems and also the Vegas over/unders to set the preseason rating which incrementally improves the, the accuracy, uh, and we do this in all this baseball also. Uh, it, but it, it, it is because ELO is a system that uh, you carry almost like it's an inherent marker of your talent. To your point earlier, it's like this number that is a label of how good are you in an absolute sense. Uh, if you regress to the mean, uh, you can kind of get most of the way there. And then, of course, you, you have to deal with what if players get traded between seasons and things like that. And in the NBA, where the, the off-season is king, as Daryl can speak to, it is a little bit more of an issue where we ended up uh, at 538 for our NBA projections sort of ditching the ELO model altogether because we realized that the value of regular season games was so low that you could kind of overcorrect to hot streaks in the regular season that just happened because of, you know, injuries that, that a player will come back, uh, load management, uh, just, you know, the way the schedule is set up with, with road trips and days off that you don't want to overcorrect. And now we actually have a system that just looks at the talent level of every player based on statistics. So it's, it's sort of interesting to me that ELO can be ported over to every sport, but it's suitable for some sports more than other ones. That's a great point, and I want to get to both Daryl and Robert here, but I'm going to go to you, Robert, because on that, on that cue about where ELO may be more suitable for chess than other sports, Robert, what is your ELO? <laughs> um, so my ELO would be about 2,600. And so in, in, to give a comparison to that, the highest rated players on the planet are roughly 2,800. So Robert is on that, on that band of ELO that is a self-correcting system, players finding and labeling their strength to the world. Uh, Robert is within 200 points of the current world champion, who would be Magnus Carlsen. So, but on, on we the should probably of, say what, what 200 points mean. Like, mm -hmm. if they play, let's say, 10 times, what do you expect? Well, I'm, as, what, what would you expect? How would you, yeah, how would you expect? He's what, very confident. What do the numbers say, or what do I expect? No, I want to know what, what you, do you expect. expect? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm uh, going to drink this water. You can continue talking, John. Okay. I would, I would say it's probably close to like two and a half or three out of ten. Yeah, two and a half. Probably. Okay. And, and I think that um, the reason I ask that is because we, we talked about the accuracy of ELO versus not. If we're we're going to get actionable here in a second. How would this apply or where is it maybe inaccurately applied? One of the things that can happen in the ELO system, as John said, is it can, it's, it's accurate when we know who these people are. We know that this person is 2,600 or 2,800. When you don't know, 
Or let's say someone established a rating and then made some trades in the offseason and something changed. How do you account and measure for that, right? Well, in chess, we actually use a system that has sort of a, another system on top of ELO now. All modern rating systems use something called uh, Glico, which is actually named after Mark Glickman. Uh, and, and Glico is, is, has added a wrinkle called the K factor we use in chess. The K factor is designed to represent... Well, why don't you actually explain? What is the K factor designed to represent? And the trick question I was going to ask is if you were to give kind of a representation to the people you just played and what their rating is, right, knowing their, what their rating is, but maybe they're better than that because they haven't played that much, right? So what is the K factor? How does the chess world adjust for this lack of information? Yeah, in chess, the fewer amount of games that you've played and the lower your rating, the higher your K factor is. So um, if... I were to play somebody who's uh, just started playing chess, uh, I may gain a certain amount of points for beating them, a very small amount, but if they beat me, not only do they get the difference in, in win differential, like expected uh, value from that game, but also a multiplier. So it helps players, especially younger players who haven't, the rating system doesn't actually accurately uh, depict younger players because they don't have a, a large sample size. And then you see all of a sudden there's somebody and the next thing you know they've skyrocketed up the rankings You're like, okay, that's that next prodigious talent. And so the, what would you say Daryl's rating is? After playing, I'm not his elo. Getting into this, <laughs> Daryl is very. The K factor with Daryl, which is that he hasn't played in over-the-board chess tournaments in a long time. <laughs> right, he plays some online, maybe some lesson. But Daryl, if I ask you your over-the-board rating, just tell me what it was the last time you played yeah, Indiana State rate. Championship. Ohio. Ohio. Uh, fifth, I got. Uh, I was 18 something, long time ago. Okay, so I, that was overestimated, I think, though. Right, but so <laughs> the idea, but you did also just beat a, a grandmaster on time, who's 2600. He. he he would have beaten me. He would have beaten you, but <laughs> so I guess the point is there's there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that go into accurately calculating how good someone is, like how they might fit on a team, like how you might ever make a trade and think a bunch of small players could all play together, and how's that going to work? So how do you think yeah. this is actually applicable to how you evaluate talent in yeah. a player performance? Go ahead. Absolutely. Like so, when you're analyzing a sport. I think the most fundamental thing is figuring out uh, how to win the championship or whatever prize or and where everyone has to make a choice on how they're going to rate their team. Because you can't make a decision until you know how close or far you are, your ELO rating of your team uh, versus, versus other teams. So that, if you don't have that, you might, you might start to make decisions to improve your team when you are so far away, you're making suboptimal decisions. So ELO, I try to put it on a spectrum. So ELO is a pure system that, directly can translate probability into score, uh, and, uh, and those, two, those two things are interchangeable, but they, to Neil's point, it doesn't factor in margin of victory. Um, and in our sport, margin of victory, that throws out too much information. Margin of victory is more important uh, than the, just the win-loss in, in, any, in any given game. Um, and I find the other thing that I wanted to mention is that the other thing chess is, so maybe I'm stealing your thunder. No, The other thing chess it. was early yeah. on is literally all the things he said, notation, which you can't, you literally can't analyze a sport until you get like some basic level notation. This direct probability translation between score and wins, but also in cheat detection, which would have been very useful in some sports recently, but cheat detection is a huge is a huge factor in chess, and you can automatically detect that. So early in AI, early in score, win probability, early in notation, and then also early in, is my mic done? Yeah. Oh. All right. 
Luckily, I'm loud. Uh, early in, uh, in, in cheat detection. So just yep. uh, that's sort of the large context that I think is sort of interesting about chess. If you study chess, it's going to come uh, later. And I think well, that run your vibe. No, you only stole it a little bit. It's okay. Because okay, where I was going to transition to that was first asking, yeah. how, how do you, without revealing any of your own secret, yeah. secret sauce, how do, do you have, so if, if, a, if an ELO rating system loses some of its accuracy, the less individual it gets. When we have one person we're labeling based on all of their history, we know how good Robert is, right? You start adding a whole bunch of other factors, seasons refresh, teams make changes, it's harder and harder to do it. But so would you say that ELO is more applicable in sports in terms of not evaluating teams and ranking them, but maybe evaluating player talent specifically and what, what their effect is from there? Yeah, so we have two ways of evaluating our team because our game does change somewhat in the playoffs as well. So historically, the number one way to evaluate your team and probably the leading indicator we use is your scoring margin. So how, how much you're beating the team matters way more than just beating them. Um, and so we focus, when we're making player moves, we focus a lot on that. But at the same time, uh, and I'll compare it to chess in a second, I think it's fascinating. We're also comparing our team to past champions and or close champions because it the scoring margin works to a large extent. This is where Neil's system got a little off and wonky in the past. Uh, and they've, they've, they've tend to fix it. It's true. Um, the, you have to also be in, at least in basketball, comparing to these past champions because the playoffs are, are somewhat different. You play seven times and things like that. And what I find fascinating for the chess fans out there is um, chess actually somewhat moved to uh, having a heuristic of a scoring margin almost where you would assign a point value to the pieces on the board and that point value would drive a lot of the decisions, and you could even calculate at, the, at checkmate time what was the point value differential. And that ended up, that notation ended up driving a lot of the sport. But then AI came, and grandmasters, super grandmasters especially knew this intuitively, but AI came and basically said, it is that exact scoring margin system that created the undervalued positions that allowed the you know Alpha Zero and now Leela to come along and find the discrepancies when scoring margin wasn't accurately describing your win probability. Uh, I might be getting too in the weeds. But. You love this stuff, so no, that, but I think Robert actually yeah. has a great addition to that point. Yeah, yeah. But there is an incredible irony in the fact that chess is a complete information game, and as you said, we have the notation, we have all these facts of margin of victory at the end of the game, but that's not factored into the ELO rating in, in the transfer of points. Right. I could, I, you played better than I did in the game we just played, but, I, but let's say I win the game because you bond your queen in one single move, then you resign. So you had a better game, yet your points transfer to me despite the fact that like, I didn't play better. And, and I knew that was going to come back around because one of the notes in this, for those who read the description, was ultimately going to circle back to ELO does not take into account margin of victory, right? And let alone the things that AI are now sort of pulling out of our game as far as the game within the game, so to speak, right? Who really played better, right? And so, Robert, how, what would chess be able to do in that sense as far as how would you... How do, and I know I'm asking you a question, I know the answer too, but how do we measure that, right? How do we measure the game within the game so that we are now able to learn uh, who played better regardless of the result? Right. 
I mean, engines are better than humans are at chess. So. Engines are termed for chess computers, right? Chess computers are now significantly better than the best human beings in the world. Right, and everyone remembers, you know, for those of you who follow chess, Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue, and Gary Kasparov was the world champion. He was pretty much seen as just this unbeatable uh, chess player, and then he ends up losing a match. Uh, and so since then, computers have can wallop humans in a game. But we can use them to assess how well people are playing. Um, that doesn't make its way into the ELO system, but people certainly do that kind of research, giving scores to uh, performers. But the, the interesting part, I would say, is that two players can have an exact same rating, but be totally different players stylistically, as well as in the qu like quality of their moves as they match up to engines. And, and on that note, circling back around to where Daryl stole my thunder and to get back, because I know you want to talk about it, is so what we, what we do now in chess is, is find these ways to measure the moments, the game within the game, and, and figure out how players are comparing to these chess engines. These, uh, at one point, it was just traditional chess computers. Now we have neural networks and machine learning, and I'm going to come back to John in, in a second on that. But So we're, we're often trying, what's, what's the risk of that in chess? Well, very often, now that we're at a place where everyone, you look at every other sport and we know who the best NBA players are, or we think we do, we know who the best NFL players are. Well, in chess, we know who the best human chess players are, but they are not the best chess players. The best chess players are the chess computers, and they're free and open source to everyone. Everyone has access to something that would beat Robert easily every time, right? And so what that did in terms of changing the game as far as our, the fear of how would we measure that and keep the game fair, right? But also, how can we use that as a predictive way to start to measure that just chess humans are playing like chess computers, maybe in a way that is not probable? Or over time, we don't believe, because we've measured it, that humans can play that good. And so the, the question comes back full around is, could that be useful? Could the way that we also look at chess notation and now have applied that to what the computer chess notation would look like and how we measure the game within the game, could that ultimately be used in other sports? if there was some sort of model like that. So first I'm going to ask John, because you know a lot about both of these. Do you think a predictive uh, cheat detection mm -hmm. like we use for chess, knowing, knowing what you know about what we do, is, is potentially applicable to other sports at some point? Oh, I have no clue. No clue. <laughs> because, okay, in chess it's sort of very obvious how you're cheating. You're using an engine that's very, very strong, that's giving you a significant advantage, just, let's just talk about football. If we see a football team that's extremely, extremely dominant, how do we measure too dominant? Right. It's subjective. This, it's, this very, it's, good. it's very hard for, at least for me, to think about how to measure a team being so dominant that there has to be something wrong, like they found some new performance-enhancing drug or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I think that's like really difficult uh, because the whole point of you know sports is to be as dominant yes. as possible, and we celebrate that. I think uh, one of the things people pointed out we're going to have to talk about the Astros in terms of cheat detection uh, is that you know they did have this sort of preternatural ability to lay off breaking pitches to, to identify what were balls and what were strikes. That could be due to skill. And, and according to MLB's report in 2019, they, as far as they know, it was. But there were a lot of sort of signs, perhaps in retrospect, 
that we could have looked at and, and suspected something was amiss, perhaps, about the way that they radically improved their, stri- uh, their walk-to-strikeout ratio between 2015 uh, and uh, 2016 and into 2017. Those are the types of things that maybe are the closest analogy in right. sports to cheat detection. But again, they could have also done that just by being really good. They had good players on, on their team, and that's one of the most vexing things about yeah. that scandal. I, I think this is straightforward. I Go really ahead. do. I really yeah. Yeah. No. So, so like all these sports have been around forever, not as long as chess, but they've been around forever. And there's, there's a, there's a normative bound of performance if you, if you, if you break it down enough. So in baseball, it's like, um, you know that, yeah, that if you have, if you're getting a fastball, right, there's going to be a certain swing rate across the league. Some players are going to be better than others. But if you start getting Z scores and like the fours and the fives, yeah, it might be that they've innovated something completely, but it allows you to just ask the question. Yeah, you can't prove it's cheating, which is the same challenge you have, I know, uh, with with Chess.com and the others. When when your flags start to go, you don't just immediately flag them. Like some human goes in and right. like looks at the data and says, "Okay, this is looking really odd," and you make a determination. You don't. I don't think you have an automated one that they're immediately flagged and banned, unless you tell me I'm wrong. We we do for the most egregious because it's e- because of it's like so well, crazy. In chess, I feel like it's uh, it's very easy because you're comparing people against this bar that is yeah, right. so far away that it's sort of. Well, I was going to much more. I want you guys it. to go. Go it's ahead. Your, it's your point though about there's essentially a cheat code in chess. Yeah, that's exactly. a very obvious one. Yes, in sports. We're watching everything. We don't see that. I mean, if you see it, someone banging on the trash can, then it's there. Yeah. But other than that, you know, it's like, how yeah. do you see? No, what, if, what's if, if yeah, like you can measure and the basket they're on. If a, if a if a team in basketball immediately started having field goal percentages much higher on their basket versus the opposing mm-hmm. basket by quarter, so you know, we just have, and we do this for competitive reasons. We just literally have an anomaly detection. It just like right. scans mm-hmm. the data for anything that, you know, and you can just buy off the shelf stuff now that just, you know, all the data mining stuff, they will, they will crunch for the sunspot detectors, which will find, you know, this thing is way out of bounds. And then you right. just take a look at it and see what's, mm-hmm. see what's happening. And I know that I, I believe the NBA had to do that on the referee type stuff where they're, they're doing scans and just saying, okay, this game doesn't have any, this, this game or this ref has had no defensive three seconds at all. Is that plausible that it, they would hap- happen to be in all the games? No, it pro- you know, but you got to go look. So um, I think that's coming. And if and if the you know MLB had been using these kinds of techniques, they would have flagged it and at least said, okay, these guys are way out of rate on swing rate if they're getting a curveball versus a fastball and and investigated. And I and I think what you just said at the end is is where and. Uh, I, I would I would say this. Okay, Danny. I, I am. I'm trying to think of what I'm allowed to say. What I'm not. I was told by my team, don't say too much about what we do with the oh, cheat detection. I oh, am because say the well. So I, I would use say that. the question is what's out of rate because that question itself is sort of subjective, right? It's human beings. As Neil made a great point that the best players in the world we worship them for their dominance, right? So when do we really become aware that something's out of rate? And I think that the only proper way to do that. We always use this term with our own cheat detection and statistics. You're not doing it with integrity unless you're also measuring the probability you might be wrong as well as correct, right? And so I think that one of the questions is, was there an established 
thing to rank them up against. Are they out of rate with what? What are they out of rate with? And I think the closest example to this that people can understand is, the, is what the IOC does to properly detect blood doping. Because the only way you can properly detect that someone's white blood cell count is out of rate is by understanding what the normal ratio is, not just the normal ratio for humans, but that particular human. So one of the things that I think that the sport world could do differently that I can say that we do is we are, we have a team of so many different, we have statisticians and what we call cheat detectives constantly just submitting data and running them up against it so that we have so many different things to compare to, it's easier to find the anomaly. So sorry, go ahead. And to your point about things being out of range, one of the interesting maybe juxtapositions between something like baseball and chess is that the Astros uh, have been accused of this. There's evidence that in 2017 that they used this uh, system, but they were not, they were one of the best teams in baseball. They won more than 100 games uh, several times, but there were teams like the Red Sox in, in uh, 2018, and they've been accused of other things, but still, can I say that in front of this crowd? Uh, that uh, They won 108 games. There have been other teams in history, the, the Yankees in 1998 won 116 games. So it's sort of like we've seen those types of performances happen, we think, organically. Uh, and so th it, there is such random variance, I think, around baseball team performance that you can get that level of performance at, uh, you know, by having a really good team that plays to the absolute max of its capabilities, or you could get it by having a widespread cheating scheme. And it's difficult to sort of distinguish one from the other, whereas in chess, there's a lot less luck involved, a lot less random variance in the matchups. Well, I think what Robert would then comment, Robert is actually um, on chess.com's kind of secret, secret cheat detection board, so he knows full well everything we do, but... Not so secret anymore. I would say... I would <laughs> the say, secret's out. Uh, yeah. What? You just, you just let the secret it's out. Oh, it's okay. There's less um, secret. But I, I think that what Daryl was talking about, it's not so much the result of the team, because we've seen yeah. 116 win seasons. We saw, you know, we've seen all that, right? But it's the game within the game measuring, the statistics within the game in terms of how they got there. So talk a little bit about kind of how we do that, what we compare to in terms of how we find that someone might be doing something that's not human regardless of the result. Well, I don't you know. You can talk about it. Go ahead. Okay. A little bit. Yeah, go ahead. You're putting me on the spot here. I don't know what I can say. Um, yeah, I mean, there's I mean, people have tendencies, right? And, right. and not just um, group tendencies of every grandmaster who's playing or every uh, player beneath that, but there are certain standards that to be, are to be met. And also, as you were saying, like individually, people do certain things and have certain patterns. And They if, chase a ball outside or they have historically through nine seasons, right? All of a sudden, it's like way out of whack, right? Yeah, and even within, within chess. So you just start, there are always abnormalities that just are natural. Uh, occurrence where let's say somebody just has a new coach and they start doing totally different things but it's there is this more objective metric in chess that you is much harder to find in other places because at the end of the day we have something that just tells us this is what the best move is this is what is supposed to happen and if you're matching up with that very regularly it, more suspicious suspicion excuse me is going to fall upon you how do you guys do openings so uh, two ways Maybe explain, but yeah, so and go ahead. No. Well, there are these the first few moves of chess are fairly mapped out to move seven to 12 or so. I mean, on most openings, and so you know, it's like an open book test. If you know, people can just get the book and say these are the ones that have generally produced. 
good position. So are those allowed? I mean, I don't refer to them. So the, the simplest way we do it is those are not counted for. They're basically given credit to every level of player. That right. We call it, it's just white. You're allowed to right? play book moves. Exactly. So those are removed. Let's say in, in a given game through 50 moves, someone matches up with the best move 30 times. If 15 of those were opening moves, those are not counted, right? right. We would consider right. it only, only 35 moves. And so uh, it doesn't mean that someone couldn't be cheating, but we don't use it against them, right, obviously. Um, to, to make this concrete, I can say that, you know, the question is being asked, like, how could we have stopped cheaters? How can we stop cheaters in the future in other sports, right, just to a answer the elephant in the room, right? I mean, that's what people want to want to know. And I, I mean, I think you can go to, to Flategate and no one still knows what happened there. But if you start to see a team have massively higher completion percentages than others, it, it absolutely makes you... The, the league office, they try to normalize everything else. They should absolutely step in and, like, figure out what that is. Is that just, you know, the Patriots have figured out some amazing new skill? Or is it, or is it something else? And, and for sure, for sure, in an automated fashion, you can flag potential cheating in all the major pro sports. And you won't know if it is or not, but that's the same challenge you have. Like, you, you, there, yeah, there's some extreme where you're like, okay, this guy's cheating. He's he's literally running Stockfish Engine 11.3, right? And then you have the, and then you probably have these middle cases where people turn it on and off, and you know stuff like that is my guess. So to go to go back to you, John. I mean, you, do you think you answered the question before is no? But I guess if we're talking about well, establishing, I should say okay. no for football. Okay, no for football. No for football. Okay, I do you want to say? And is it is that just because of the nature of of football compared to other sports? Or? I think I do think it's really the nature of football as opposed to something like baseball or even basketball. I mean, okay, suppose you you do a statistical analysis and you see maybe some team is predicting their opponent's uh, play calls hmm. better than average. Well, maybe they're cheating. Maybe they're actually using some technology because you know there's actually been research i think there was like a recent paper that showed that like you know using basic neural networks actually predicts these things really well yeah i always thought nfl teams should just randomize across their yeah. playbook because I, there has to be we know there are tendencies we even saw it with ken jennings yesterday yeah. where they were trying to predict the daily doubles well a human was picking the daily double spots right before they would go on it turns out there were very consistent human patterns oh. you know they're right-handed so they were more here <laughs> They were like more hard questions, even though it wasn't supposed to be that. And, and so anytime you have a human picking, there's for sure patterns. And so if you have a head coach of a team or an offensive yeah. coordinator, they're going to have a pattern you could pick up on. Yeah, so I don't know how to discern between a team has got another team's play calls and now they're watching them on the sideline and they're, they've actually got much sort of more intelligent about recognizing an opponent's play call. That's hard for me to tell. Okay, if a completion rate is out of this world with like among all receivers okay maybe you look at something but it's i don't know what you think but it, it seems difficult for me at least in but football. there's more basic things on real quick yeah. the kickers right so if you yeah. have a kicker and mm -hmm. he's immediately overnight going from 88 percentage over a certain to, to 96 mm -hmm. or whatever you'd want to figure out okay are they doing something that's they're, they've found a new skill, or is yeah. it actually something maybe I mean, not legal to the rules? Yeah, I just, I mean, for kickers, for instance, mm -hmm. the sample size just still feels, it feels small if you're a kicker and you're going off field goals. It's just, it just feels tough for me in football. Yeah. I, I do agree that, like, okay, in baseball. You just want to be unique. Basketball. No. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. This is just, 
No, but, he's uh, the, the mathematician, doesn't I mean? No. It's, go ahead, Neil. I'm, no, I, I was just going to say, yeah, to your point, John, it's difficult to discern sort of innovation that is within the rules yeah. from perhaps, you know, something that's outside the bounds. But I think it's interesting to flip things around the other way. You were talking about, Daryl, with the idea of each piece of material on the chessboard having sort of an assigned value and players sort of making trades in play according to that sort of visualizing the game according to the perceived value of the pieces then you get you know chess engines and you find out that pieces and positions are under or overvalued that struck me as a little bit like when in baseball we we learned the the linear weight value of a home run against a double against a triple and things like that so there are ways that you can actually use technology and use something that might be smarter than human intuition to kind of back out the proper values of a move or a piece of material. And I think that's actually sort of an interesting way to look at innovation in sports that we can see across chess and also in, in uh, some of the um, big four sports. Okay. Well, and so to bring it, I want to bring it back a little bit to the ecosystem. I have a couple of follow-up questions, but I, I guess the... Bringing, bringing the things from chess back to sports, like you said, you're talking about the piece values and that maybe could be, could be compared to the game within the game of baseball, regardless of the results. Chase, you know. Or the piece values are like war values. War values. Right? right? right. And so that gives you the value of the player. But those are like point estimates. So it actually does, to Neil's point, it does compare that, you know, if you go to baseball or even basketball, which has war, it's very fuzzy. You know, everyone wants to collapse things down to a point estimate, which really it's a point estimate and a variance. And the value of the player changes based on the context of the game. You know, Russell Westbrook now with more space, a lot more valuable. People might say, you know, Russell was losing his fastball, but now he's immediately, you know, playing in a system that's, you know, even better for him. He was good before, great now. So the context of the game changed. You know, and in chess, you either have, you know, with a lot of space, you know, having the pieces, the piece values might be more accurate. With constrained space, you might have spectators' pieces where the war of the, each player it, is collapsed. It does seem that the more, the more granular you make it, the harder it is to say that it's accurate. It's not about results, because there were a lot of things that went into winning a baseball game more than individual. But I think we would all agree that if... If we were talking about making it actionable, how you would predict and maybe at least make an assessment that something's off, whether someone's cheating or not is another question. I think it would be fair to say that it has to be done on an individual player level and probably done in a way that, that has something, a baseline to compare it to. Would we all agree that there's no way to do it properly if MLB hadn't been, I'm trying to get to the elephant in the room, which is unless you're proactively anticipating that someone's gonna cheat again, there's no way to catch them when they're doing it. So to talk about what we do, most of the secret sauce is done in the preparation that is assuming people are going to cheat. They're going to cheat, and we have to be ready to catch them, right? So would we all at least agree on that? For sure. Yeah, what are we agreeing? You have Robert? to anticipate it might happen? Yeah, I just don't want to raise my hand. But I mean, it's interesting, some of this conversation about you know, having this neat little step, because in some ways, chess kind of rests on its laurels of having this system that is pretty accurate in addressing people's strengths, but it hasn't really done much. For example, having the first move in chess is an advantage. And there should be separate ratings for when you have the white pieces and when you have the black pieces. You're totally different players. And like a home court advantage yeah, adjustment uh -huh. in ELO. Exactly. Yeah. And also quality of opponent. Because chess is, as Daryl was saying, quite mapped out in openings and things like that, if uh, a strong grandmaster has the black pieces against a lower rated player, 
because it's so well you know, mapped out all the information in front of you, you can actually map out a strategy to make a draw. And you see the notation right there. And also, there aren't always aligned incentives because there are different people competing for different things within chess that one person wants to win the game. The other person's like, well, I just want to make a draw with that person. So we're like trying to quantify everything, whittle it down, but in individual moments, it really doesn't pan out very accurately. And not to mention what I keep saying about the quality of how you play is not taken into account in an individual game. And perhaps the, the map, as you're saying, is really the key, is constantly having a map, both in terms of, when we say map in terms of opening theory, by the way, to translate that, I feel like we're making a step. The chess theory developed before other games because keeping score, like we said, not just the result, but the game within the game, every little thing that happened, right? It was, and, and that leads to a better understanding that we have universally of what the assumed best approaches are. As chess grandmasters, we always know we go, if you go play someone who doesn't know the game and we're playing a simul, they say, like, wait, if I play this and surprise you and then this, does that throw you off, right? And, and it's always funny because the chess theory has already been so established. There is, it's not just memory. It's not a trick, right? It's an understanding of a language, so to speak. And I think that without putting in the effort to develop that theory, you don't know how to predict that someone's doing a new theory, an anomaly theory, a theory that is maybe shouldn't be that good, right? Of course, what's changing everything now is the neural networks and all that kind of stuff. But I want to come back to the rating system. We keep talking about player ratings, um, whether we can measure and predict their performance. So a K factor applies to someone who maybe has taken a break, not just a new person, like a young person, but has taken a break, right? So bringing that back to how would you, how would, how would you apply that to other sports, make it football specifically, John? How would you think that something like that could be applied to players and say, hey, you're going to get this guy who retired last year because he was in a contract dispute, maybe a wide receiver with a controversial kind of storyline. What kind of K factor is he going to lose? Wow. What kind of, how good is he going to be when he comes back? How can, how can GMs learn from that and evaluate what strength you lose by your kind of being on the sidelines and not playing? That's a great question. And again, I'm not, I'm not giving good answers because no, I'm, you're doing great. I'm not sure because there is like such a small sample size. Like in chess, we sort of, I feel like there's a decent understanding of this because there's a large amount of data and it's sort of fairly well understood that uh, how much variance a player has in their ELO rating is dependent on how long since they've played last, how long they've been playing, how much they've been playing recently, and also their strength. So if you take Robert and I, Robert is like 2,600. If he doesn't play in a year, you still have much more confidence in his rating versus me, like a 1700, if I don't play in a year, there is much more variance there. Yeah, and the, and the K factor can also be described as almost like the velocity of how quickly the ratings change. Mm -hmm. Someone like Robert, it's so established that it's, it's not going to change as quickly as someone that maybe just picked up the game, very low ELO rating, but they're also improving a lot as they learn, as perhaps they take private lessons from you, like Daryl. Uh, and so I think that that concept is also, it's basically just uh, you start with a prior and you adjust that prior and when you have less confidence in your opening prior about uh, someone's talent level, you're going to adjust it faster based on the, the observed performances that you see. And even in the case of, uh, you know, an NFL team acquiring a new receiver or something like that, I mean, football is notoriously uh, difficult to, to pin down, you know, individual performances, and so much of it depends on scheme and how well they fit and, and performing certain roles. That would be another case for the K factor to, to, to uh, be very large so that the ratings change very quickly 
quickly when you can say like, oh, we've only seen one game with this guy, but man, he looks like he really is exactly what the Patriots need or something like that. Uh, and so I, I think there is a case for different sports to have different K factors. And in fact, we do have that even at the team level where uh, baseball games have a very low K factor. You don't learn that much from any one of 162 regular season games because it, it's a lot of noise, frankly. Whereas in football, it's much higher because you do learn a lot more from any individual football game. Uh, and, and again, the season is so short that each game, you know, you know that the teams are playing at their maximum uh, ability aside from certain like like edge cases like week 17 resting your starting quarterback or something. So I think it does speak to the, the, the differences of teams. And I mean, you're a 2600 ELO. The best baseball team is probably like a 1600 ELO. And you can actually, I mean, that is, because it is based on the relative differences and, and the win probability implied from it, that actually is, it's an apples to apples comparison in a certain way. And it, do, and it speaks to the, the lack of, um, you know, the, just so much more variance in, in a sport like baseball than in chess. We're like, you're probably going to beat somebody that's worse than you most of the time, I think. Yeah. One thing I will say is that uh, when we're talking about like ELO ratings for, let's say, the NFL or the MLB or anything, we have this structured system in which you sort of have more or less all play all yeah. at all different rating levels. And one thing that's actually, well, I don't know if it's an issue or in chess, we can talk about it, yep. is that, uh, you know, it's been shown mathematically, there's actually this interesting paper in like uh, Siam Journal of Applied Math that looked at convergence rate for ELO ratings. So you start with some initial ELO ratings, how long does it take for every player to converge to what is believed to be their true ELO rating? Huh. And what they showed is that when you have an all play all system, you exhibit this like exponential convergence. But when you have a local system in which people, you're only playing people near your rating, it can actually be sort of extremely slow. And so one thing that's been sort of discussed in chess over and over again is you have this level of chess players like the top 10 or top 15, these people are called super grandmasters, and throughout the year, they're mainly only playing each other. Yep. And so it's very hard to play one of these people and this might actually be a little bit of a barrier to... It could be something chess could learn from other sports. Yeah, a barrier to a very strong player who might be sort of improving, sort of making that jump because he actually doesn't really get a chance to play those higher rated players. Go ahead, Daryl. Yeah. I'll make a yeah, quick the... observation is uh, usually the person who knows the most on the panel is the person saying, I don't know a bunch. And I've been asked, like, hey, would you work in the NFL? And, and I, I feel like him, whenever someone says that, I'll be like... I would just say I don't know, like all day, because they just don't have enough data. It's so right. frustrating, you know. You, you know, and there's 22 players on the field, and it's a, it's so complicated. NFL is so complicated. I, I wanted to get to both Robert and you, but what would you say? So they talked a lot about we talked about chess and football. In terms of basketball, how much how much goes into assessing uh, the other factors that go into affecting someone's individual elo? Let's say all of your players have an elo. Maybe you have your own ranking system, right? and you're evaluating players around the league that have an ELO. How much do you take into account the systems, the schemes, the other sort of the, the abstract factors that might affect a player's individual performance? Yeah, it's a huge factor where I would build off what Robert said, which is, you know, you, you, you generally, because we have to ultimately pay players, and we have a limited bucket of money, you have to 
as best you can, allocate that money to the players you think will drive winning the most. So as much as people hate all-in rating systems, eventually you have to almost have that because you have to drive to how you're allocating your resources. So as much as it will always be wrong and have a lot of variance, you do need to, you, 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 what you pay them becomes your all-in rating system. Now you get it wrong and things like that. And so when we grab players off of other teams, yeah, the entire analysis is how are they playing there? What is their skill factors driving that? How will they play in our structure? And what are the skill factors? And there's a lot of art to it. And what, a, what I love about basketball is I think in the NFL you're saying I don't know a lot because there's not enough data. In baseball, it's almost, you know, chess is even to the left of baseball and how well you can define it. Then there's baseball. We're right in this very nice art science mix where there's still a lot to learn, a ton to learn, but you can also analyze things with 82 games and lots of back and forth. So. Is that because of just the nature of basketball to say like that the best players can affect both offense and defense? Is that because of Well, the, yeah, we have fewer players on the like, floor. Like we're football case. We have fewer players on the floor and you go back and forth a bunch and each time you get 0 1 2 3. So in a lot of these sports um, like hockey, you know, soccer is the best example. You just go back and forth a ton, and it's like, oh, zero again. You know, zero, 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 zero. And you can't learn a lot when you just get lots of zeros. So you have to, like, add per move, per pass these values, but they don't always map to the final. We should get some audience questions. Right. Huh? Yeah, we do. Um, we've got about eight minutes left. We've got ten minutes left. We have the iPad here. I didn't want to crush you. Do you it's questions. your panel, man. Hey, hey. I just didn't want them to feel like they didn't get to ask you anything. I, I'm, doing, I'm doing my – oh, and Maggie's been updating it. Thank you so much. Um, remind everybody, uh, last chance, if you if you do have any questions and you'd like it for any, any of our panelists here or just on the general topic, use the hashtag Checkmate, and uh, Maggie is working hard to, to throw them our way. So we've got a few here. Uh, one question from Twitter. We have a – how do you factor an ELO score type rating for a player who has player who was not good on one team but is is a great player on another team? Um, I'm going to give that to you actually. But yeah, I think we sort of just so, answered yeah. that. Yeah. Um, good, good yes. point. Yeah, that yeah. that's actually the art of my job is find the player because you have to find undervalued, so you got to find the player right. better here than there. Mm -hmm. So let's see. I'm going to I'm going to throw one of these here at John. Actually, uh, those who don't know a lot about the fact that he's pursuing his PhD currently at MIT. Uh, one of your fields of expertise is actually machine learning. Although, uh, like, my sort of research has been mostly in sort of, like, unsupervised right. learning. I should the major PhD he's getting is being humble and not really <laughs> what he knows. That's the, main, that's the main thing he's pursuing. Uh, but, no, John, a question here about AlphaZero, I think from a chess fan, says AlphaZero changed the way that chess engines learn by using a reinforced learning system. Mm -hmm. What insights have human players been able to take away from this learning style? Okay, so it's actually maybe for Robert. This is... Yeah, I mean, they're just very different approaches than a, a, you would see when you study the games. Because uh, when you fr people first looked at AlphaZero games, they saw the result, like, wow, crushed the match, it's awesome. But then you started looking at the games, like, what in the world is that? If you just tuned in at a random moment in the game and looked at the position, you'd think that AlphaZero playing on one side was like pretty bad in some to some extent, but they're like much deeper understanding what Daryl was talking about in chess. You know, the traditional engines have a numerical point value uh, for the different pieces, and AlphaZero doesn't operate in that regard. It dismisses the you know these um, 
the point system, and so that it just goes for like I mean, you can explain. Yeah, it better it's now. a it's sort of a, okay. I'm not nearly as strong enough a chess player, but to me it seems that Alpha Zero really sort of exhibited a lack of concern about material yes. that is atypical for modern chess engines. Yeah, is the best it, way I could put it. Part of the reason for that we can translate is the way chess engines were built. We talked a lot about this on last year's yeah. panel. Is that to teach them how to think like a human, the only way to do it was to say, no, don't give up your knight for a pawn. A knight is better, because yeah. the math says a knight is worth three, and this is worth one. So computers inherently, even as we taught them to think about the abstract, sometimes it is OK to give up a knight for a pawn, because you have an attack. Yeah. But everything still came from a fundamental uh, starting point, which was based on math, based on a right and a wrong, kind of black and white. Whereas the neural networks, AlphaZero, from yeah. the team DeepMind. Has no basis. There's, we weren't allowed to tell cold. them anything. Yeah. So yeah. apparently they taught themselves something that is still being understood. And I think one of the fascinating things, Robert, about chess is that it is a game of determined information. It's limited, yeah. yet we haven't solved it. Right. Extremely far. And it's almost Extremely. provably unsolvable for years still, unless we, even with Moore's Law, even if it keeps it up. Extremely, extremely far away from even being weakly solved. Extremely, yeah, extremely yeah. far. Solved in a sport means tic-tac-toe is solved. Right. It's a tie. No, optimal moves always leads to a tie. Yeah. Uh, checkers is solved. Um, right. Weekly, yeah. Weekly solved, yeah. I have a question for Robert related Go to ahead. that. When I was in St. Louis, which is the center of the chess universe in the United States, two years ago, uh, Leela AlphaZero was just coming out, and I was fascinated by it. I wanted to learn about it for basketball. And I talked to several grandmasters, Caruana, Levon, MVL, these for chess fans, they know who that is. And they all thought they couldn't learn anything from it. And I told them that they were utterly wrong, which I think I was correct. But then they told me, oh, we were, we were just saying that because we were already using it. Do you think that was real or bullshit? <laughs> They're all out. using it. I think that. Were they using it two years ago? I think some people were, yeah. I really do. Because, and also in chess, there's a lot of secrecy because all the information is out there for you to discover. But you, if you haven't discovered it, why should I help you and tell you what I've been doing to figure that out? So they were mad I was asking. Because they'd say no. And I was like, novel opening moves. Like, there's got to be like 20 different ways you could use it. They were like, no, no, no. People lie. Well, I think in games, do they lie, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why, why would you want to tell other people, like, yeah. oh, no, I have this really great thing I'm using that's really, really helping me out? I think secrecy is important in chess because the, the, the information is limited. Everyone has the same information. And most comparable would be like baseball. That's why knowing a pitch, there's only so many pitches they can throw. So knowing the sequence or what's coming becomes a bigger advantage, which is why the sequence of what's coming in chess is kept so secret from the world's best. I'm, I'm going to leave us with a final question for each, for each one of our members here. We had a, a great question, um, which is uh, also from Twitter, using the hashtag Checkmate. Thank you. Uh, the question is, while, while chess is strictly a numeric game, business is more dynamic. I'm going to say sports are as well, by nature, and require human insight in addition to, the, to data. What are three important functions that business, the business of sports, can learn from chess? And actually, I'm going to do it this way. Give us one thing that business or sports can learn from chess, and one thing chess can learn from sports. Each person gets to say one, one each way. You want to take this first? <laughs> You're first. Uh, well, so I think one thing that, uh, that business can learn from, or that 
maybe chess can learn from business is this idea, you talked about the dynamic nature of things, that uh, the, the ratings are always moving targets. The, the change of, of players between seasons and things like that, we've learned this when we were developing our uh, team ratings compared with chess where your ability doesn't change, you know, uh, ex except maybe like over decades. I, I don't know how, how you would characterize it. Um, and so it's a lot more stable, whereas I think in, in business and in sports, it's a lot more like you're just constantly trying to hone in on a moving target and doing your best estimate of how good a, a team or a player is at any given time. But it's all it is is ever going to be is an estimate. Yeah. Robert, what's one thing chess can learn from sports? Chess can learn from, um, well, I think the concept of momentum is... I mean, it's not, it doesn't exist in terms of rating system. We talk about the ELO ratings of how chess players are ranked, like where you're coming from. If you're the same rating as somebody else, if I play myself, I either, if I win, I gain five points. And you lose, you lose five points. But that doesn't take into account everything that's happened to that moment, and I think that's a big mistake. John, what's one thing athletes or the sports world can learn from chess? Maybe by playing chess? By playing chess? Uh, play. Yeah, that's true. I started playing my junior year in college. Right after I started playing, all big time player. Must be because of the chess. <laughs> Heard it here. That's my advice. And, um, so one of my big, and you guys are solving this a little bit, but um, I, my, I was watching uh, one of the eSports games, Hearthstone, and I was playing it, and it's similar to other card games, and I was like, and this was gaining huge viewerships on Twitch, and people played it, and I was like, this game is like way worse than chess. Like way worse. It's way less dynamic. People playing it. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's just you guys are terrible at marketing. Terrible. <laughs> terrible at marketing. Like, you know, if you if like if you had better graphics or or some I mean like like speed chess is fascinating. Way better than these card games online. I think you just if you just relabeled chess change it to, you know, Avalon or some name, or, and then just played it as an eSport, it would, it would take off quickly. So. I mean, I feel like you need some shiny graphics, like a knight yeah. gets to a pawn and it's like slicing it in half. Maybe like, some good commentators. You know. <laughs> Submitting all of, these, all of these proposals to our team. Yeah. Uh, no, but uh, thank, you. thank you everybody for being with us. And uh, the, the now Dark Arts, what the sports world can learn from chess comes to a close here. Thank you. Let's give a huge round of applause to all of our all of our panelists here. Gerald, John. Elbow bump. Thank you for coming, everyone. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.